0: If you're new with us, we're going through 2 Corinthians, and we're picking up uh, where we left off uh, last week. And so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we dive into his word this morning. Remind you, Lord Jesus, of your words that in this world we will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. pray that this sermon would be a means of enabling us to take heart knowing that our greatest problem has already been solved and that glory is coming. Strengthen our hearts through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Everybody said amen, amen. You can pick those amens up a little bit if you like uh, today. It's really hard to, to preach uh, to people wearing masks and uh, I can't see your beautiful faces and the expressions, so uh, perhaps if you hear something good, you can just raise your hand or something, you know, that would be, be helpful. Um, Peter Drucker, the the late leadership guru, said that the four hardest leadership jobs in America were the following. Number one, president of the United States. Number two, president of a university. Number three, CEO of a hospital. And number four, pastor of a church. In no particular order. Now, you may or may not agree with his list. You may want to add some professions to that list, and if we included all jobs, the Including those you don't get paid for, we'd obviously want to put parenting uh, on that list. But I bring it up because in Second Corinthians, you see that the Apostle Paul is dealing with all kinds of challenges in ministry. Apostle to the Corinthians, it was a hard job. In fact, one writer summarized Second Corinthians like this: "Oh, how I love you, you darling scallywags! You dear, sweet, blockheaded scoundrels!" You infuriating puppies. (laughs) Well, that gets at the Corinthians. There is joy in this letter. There was joy that Paul derived from ministering to the Corinthians, but there was also a lot of frustration. And as we mentioned last week, as we started talking about integrity in ministry, I mentioned that this is not just a relevant text for those who are in vocational ministry. After all, all Christians are called to do ministry. Pastors, equip the saints to do the work of ministry, and all ministry is difficult whether that's around a dinner table or a pulpit, or whether that's in your church office or when in your workplace. We should never think of ministry as being easy. And if we ever do, we should just go to Second Corinthians and get a little dose of reality. One of the first classes uh, I took in seminary was on First Corinthians. And I remember the professor saying something along the lines of the church in Corinth was the most problematic church in the New Testament. And it's hard to argue with that. When you read 1 Corinthians, you read about factions, lawsuits, debates over singleness and marriage, food offered to idols, issues of Christian liberty, gender, spiritual gifts, um, uh, not allowing people to take the Lord's Supper, uh, all sorts of uh, issues that Paul is addressing in that letter. 2 Corinthians, he's addressing a major rift in the fellowship. The relationship is delicate with the Corinthians. And I think in some ways, acknowledging the the fact that the churches that we read about in the New Testament had problems, encourages us. uh, Because it helps us set proper expectations, I think. This is not to excuse sin, but it is to help us get reality. Often you hear people say, we need to return back to the first century church. Well, that's what we're looking at. And uh, they had a lot of conflict. And all throughout church history, whether you're talking about Spurgeon's church or Jonathan Edwards' church, you find all sorts of problems. Many of my heroes in pastoral ministry at one time or the other wanted to quit. Now, why is that? Why, why are there problems in the church? Well, it's because there are people like me who pastor them and people like you who are in them. That's why. And, and the reality is, it's amazing. There aren't more issues. You think about trying to get together with your extended family once a week and all agree on songs and and, and who a preacher ought to be, and all of these things. How's that going to go? But we, we do this kind of thing. That we're, we're together all the time, and there's, there's sin. There, there are personality clashes. There are preferences. There are all sorts of things uh, that uh, just, you know, uh, lead to squabbles, misunderstandings, conflicts, and so on. Now, even the Apostle Paul's church that he planted had major issues. But this is the encouraging part. Paul says that despite all of the problems with these infuriating puppies, uh, the Corinthians, this messy fellowship has been caught up into new covenant glory. They have been caught up into the already not yet reality of the gospel, that they have been converted and they have this promise of glory that is to come. God loves these messy fellowships. God has come and he's saved us and put us into the family. And he's given us glorious promises. Now, last week, I began talking about seven traits of minister of integrity from uh, chapter 1, verse 12, into chapter 2, verse 4. Just to remind you, or perhaps you weren't here, we looked at number one, grace-enabled godliness, verses 12 to 14. I didn't say this last week. I meant to say it, but uh, those verses really form, as some call it, the thesis of 2 Corinthians. So much of this letter is about Paul having to defend his integrity because the gospel itself was at stake. And so he he says in verse 12 that I have acted with a godliness, a sincerity, a simplicity, a single-minded devotion. But it's not in my own strength, it's by the grace of God. The second trait we looked at was an eschatological vision. That's at the end of verse 14 where Paul says that on that day, the day of Christ Jesus, I will boast in you and you will boast of me. You will not be ashamed of me. I will not be ashamed of you. But when Christ returns, we will not only boast in Christ, but we will boast in each other. And this reminds us, as I said last week, that investing in others is worth it because of what's coming. The third uh, truth we looked at was truthful speech, that a minister of integrity is marked by letting their yes be yes and no be no. And Paul worked through that as, as he talked about his change in travel plans. And where we left off, number four, is, is a minister of integrity He's marked by Christ-centered proclamation. Paul talks about the faithfulness of God in verse 18, and where he goes to demonstrate the faithfulness of God is in the fact that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. That what God pledged to do, Christ has fulfilled. Jesus is the apex of the Old Testament. He is the high point of Holy Scripture. And Paul says, my preaching was not wishy-washy, it was clear. Jesus is the Father's yes for every promise, every need, and every hope. Amen. Now, you may be just exploring Christianity, and you may think, as I used to think in many ways, that the dominant message of Christianity is no. It's just God telling you a bunch of stuff you cannot do. And there are no's, to be sure, that we are to avoid. Paul says in Titus 2 that we are to renounce ungodliness. But you should also see the yes that God promises the world. What God promises the world is something infinitely better than the fleeting pleasures of sin. He offers us his beloved son to save and to satisfy, to defend and care for us. And Paul says, when I rolled into Corinth, me and my boys, Silvanus and Timothy, we preached Christ." From his word, and he is the great yes. Well, that leads us with three more. A minister of integrity, Paul says, is marked by spiritual authenticity. And we see this here in verses uh, 21 and 22. He says some really important things about the work of the Spirit. And you'll notice here the Trinitarian nature of this whole passage, that the Father has made these promises, Christ has come and fulfilled them, the Spirit applies them to our hearts. And so he says... And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now again, Paul is continuing to defend his integrity to the Corinthians and what he does now is go to the work of the spirit to say that God has established us together in Christ. You can trust me because we are in this together. We we are in Christ. We are are placed into uh, this this community of faith by the Spirit. And he says a number of important things about the work of the Spirit. First of all, he says, it's God who does this. Notice verse 21 again. It is God who establishes us. He, He says this kind of thing later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he's talking about Christ's work of reconciling us to God, and he says, all of this is from God. Salvation is of God. It is his work. It is his doing, and God has established us, he says, with you in Christ. He's established us. He gives four blessings here in these verses of the work of the Spirit, and all of them really point to one idea, and that is our security that we have in Christ, that we're, we're, con- we're established, first of all, this means to put it beyond the, the realm of doubt, to confirm or establish, to make secure. It was a word used in the judicial system and also in the commercial realm. Our status as Christians is solidified. If we are in Christ, we have been established. I've used before the analogy of a standby ticket versus a confirmed ticket. You don't want a standby ticket because you don't know if you're getting on a plane or not. But if you have a confirmed ticket, you're good. And Paul says, "When you are in Christ, you are established, you are confirmed, And the Spirit makes this a reality. Secondly, he says regarding the spirit that God anoints you. God anoints believers. He has put his, or excuse me, He has anointed us and he's put His seal on us. Often in Christian circles, you hear people praying for those who are about to preach or lead in corporate worship that God would anoint them and that's a fine thing to pray, but the dominant emphasis in the New Testament is that all Christians are anointed in the sense that they have been consecrated and set apart for service. And that is because we are in the anointed one, Jesus himself. We are in the anointed one, and we, uh, as a result, are a messianic community. We are a community of anointed ones. Because we are in Christ, we are anointed by the Spirit, which means that we're saved not just from something, but for something. Again, all Christians are called and equipped to serve. And how is it that we're empowered to do this service? The work of the Spirit. He has anointed us. Thirdly, he says that God seals believers by the Spirit. Again, this is getting at the idea of our security that we have in Christ. The word sealed in the New Testament times referred to stamping of an identifying mark on something we've been marked by the spirit we have been sealed one writer puts it the seal in antiquity was an impression made on wax by a special instrument to indicate the ownership of a document and the presence of the holy spirit within us is a seal of ownership we should remember that we do not belong to ourselves but to god we belong to god it's a fundamental truth that we have to continue to come back to again and again and again to remember whose we are back when uh, kimberly and i were dating back when we used to drive camels around and you know horses and buggies and stuff uh, my mom would tell us when we were alone she would go to bed and leave us alone she said now remember whose you are because she knew kimberly was quite tempted all right and uh you know that's not true. Uh, st- after 17 years of marriage, she still plays hard to get. Uh, but mom's telling me that for me. Remember, and she was talking about who, who you are, not just uh, your last name, but who you are in Christ. The Holy Spirit identifies us as belonging to God. We read this idea of, of the sealing in Ephesians 1 previously, right? That As we believe in him, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so if you're not a Christian, believe in Christ. Turn from your sin, trust in Christ, and you receive a sealing. You are secure in Christ. And the Spirit comes to indwell you, empower you for service. But there's even more. Notice how he says the Spirit not only establishes us and anoints us and seals us, but he guarantees something for us, something to come in the future when he says he's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is just a remarkable idea that the, the spirit is, if you like, a down payment or a guarantee of our eternal inheritance to come. The spirit is the first installment of the glory that is to come. You see this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. Paul gets at this idea when he says, For while we are still in this tent, this body, he calls us a tent, we groan, as a verse we can relate to, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, that is, with a new body. And he says, so that, we, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then he says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a spirit as a a guarantee. So the spirit is in us now. What are we doing now? We're burdened, we're groaning. The body's falling apart. But we're going to put on glory in the future. And there's going to be no more pain and no more burden, no more groaning, just gladness. How do we know that's true? The spirit of God is within us today. And that spirit is guaranteeing the glory that is to come. So the Spirit is not only transformative, the Spirit is also signifying something greater that we all anticipate. So again, back to this idea that God is faithful. Verse 18, where does Paul go to demonstrate the faithfulness of God? Well, he goes to Christ fulfilling God's promises, and now he goes to the Spirit. Right now the Spirit within us is testifying also that God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to his promise that that, uh, the new heaven and new earth is coming. The Spirit is this down payment of that guarantee. So, we rejoice today in incredible security we have in Christ by the Spirit. And what unity we have in the Spirit. Because you notice that's what he says, that he has established us with you Corinthians. We're together by the Spirit. Now, sixth, a minister of integrity is also marked by joy-focused labor. These are some of my favorite verses about why we do ministry. Okay, notice what he says in verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. So he's swearing an oath. I want you Corinthians to know what's up. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to you in Corinth. Now it's again, we went through Paul's itinerary a bit last week, but the situation was basically this. Paul was over in Ephesus. He had told them that he was going to come from uh, east to west, from Ephesus to Corinth in Greece. Go up to Macedonia, where Philippi and Thessalonica are, come back through, and then take all the money that he's collected for the Jerusalem Church and get that, uh, give them that offering. But he doesn't do that little up and back because he got a report that there was a major problem in the church. We'll talk more about that next week. And so instead, he just makes an emergency visit to address this issue. It seems to be one particular offender as kind of a ringleader of a faction, and Paul. It, the meeting doesn't go well. It's a painful meeting, a sorrowful meeting. So he goes back to Ephesus and he hasn't been back since. Now, he's writing from Macedonia and he's going to come to Corinth shortly. But there's a problem. So instead of coming that second time, he writes them a letter. It's a painful letter. And he says, Here is why I didn't come again. It's because I wanted to spare you. <laughs> I don't know if one of your parents ever said, don't make me come up there, uh, right? It was an act of kindness and mercy that Paul says, I didn't show up because the only thing that would have happened if I would have shown up is that there would have been judgment or more conflict. So instead, I decided to write you a letter and basically he gives them time to repent and correct the problem. And as we're going to see next week, they did that. The majority of them did And so he's he's explaining why he he didn't come. And in doing this, Paul is reflecting the very mercy of God, who says, you know, Christ hasn't come again, and that's because he's merciful, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And if you're not a Christian, you should recognize that this is a time of mercy right now, a time for turning to God in repentance and faith. Well, all of that then sets up verse 24. Paul expresses, again, his motive in ministry when he says these words. Not that we lord it over your faith. Not that we're domineering. But we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. Everything Paul says that I wanted to do, everything that I have been doing is for your joy. It's for your joy. When it comes to ministry, there are 10,000 things you could do for someone. But here is a crystal clear passage about what we're to be about in ministry. For their joy in the faith. We work with you for your joy. What kind of joy is this? Sam Storms puts it well. The joy that Paul has in mind is a deep, durable delight in the splendor of God that utterly ruins you for anything else. The deep, durable delight in the splendor of God that utterly ruins you for anything else. Paul says, that's why I do what I do. That's why I'm doing ministry. To see people delight in God. To see people's joy be made full. Paul said the same thing over in Philippians, didn't he? When he says, I don't know what I wanna do, uh, Philippi, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'm really torn because I know dying means more of the presence of Christ. But then then he says, but I'm convinced of this, I will remain for your progress and joy in the faith. That's the motive. My brother Kilo over here, when we were bringing him in to the staff, he said, ask me this question all the time, am I leaking? Am I leaking joy? And so it's a great practical way to apply this text. Uh, we, We leak, don't we? And we need other brothers and sisters to come and help us make progress and have joy in the faith. We are workers with you for your joy. And Paul knows he can do this, he says, because you're standing firm in the faith. That is, they were genuine Christians. And because they're Christians, he says, I don't have to dominate you. So you notice here, Paul has a responsibility to work But he also gives the Corinthians liberty. He cooperates. He doesn't dominate. It's a great text on Christian leadership. They're standing firm in their faith. Therefore, he can teach, he can guide, he can counsel, but he's not a tyrant. Friends, what do you want to see in others? What do you want to see in your kids? What do you want to see in your growth group? What do you want to see in this church? Here it is that we may abound with joy in Christ, to be satisfied in Christ, to glory in Christ. Every sermon, every growth group, every student ministry function, listen, every Zoom call, every family devotion, every conversation, all of it for their gladness in God. Someone has said before, a failure is being successful at the wrong things. Well, here is the right thing for their joy in Christ. Paul says, everything that I did for you, Corinthians, was bound up with a sensitivity toward your well-being and joy. Now, here's the reality. You'll have a hard time working for the joy of others if you yourself have no joy. Which is why George Mueller, the great pastor and uh, caregiver of, of orphans said, my first business every day is to get my heart happy in the Lord. That's my first business of the day. And this takes work. This is not like Paul saying, well, you guys are on your own. Notice we work with you, and the rest of the letter bears this out. This takes a work ethic. It takes sacrifice. But I love the methodology here. Paul says, I go about this work of seeing you grow in your joy in Christ, not not by dominating, but by cooperating. We're working with you. He wanted to work with them, not on them. He sees them as partners. He's not going to browbeat them. He's He believes in persuasion, as this letter shows us, but not coercion. I tell students uh, in in seminary when they come in, listen, you, you get out of your education what you put into it. You can have incredible professors, but if you don't work, then it's not their fault. And contrary, you can have not so good professors, but if you really put in work, you're going to grow. Leaders must work hard. But followers also must do their part. We work with you for your joy. You can lack joy even though you have good leaders. Judas had Jesus, right? (laughs) I don't think, you know, man, I just need someone else to mentor me. He had Jesus, right? And he betrays him. That's what the Bible tells us personally. We have to take responsibility to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling cooperating. He's not lording it over them. Jesus and Peter warned us about this kind of leadership. Paul's no tyrant. He's not being overly pushy. He has authority, but he believes in their liberty as well. And becoming too authoritative is a temptation in leadership. And Paul says, that's presenting yourself as a Lord. We must never, for example, bind someone's conscience on that which is not scripture. That's lording it over people. You see this sort of thing happen, like telling people during Lent there are certain things you have to give up, (laughs) or you can't eat meat on Fridays, or whatever it is. You can get really cultish, right, checking people's uh, bank books and and getting so invasive, uh, things that are just micromanaged to death. Paul says, I, didn't, I did not operate like that. I am working with you for your joy, knowing that you stand firm in the faith. This is, doesn't mean, again, you've got to walk this tightrope. It doesn't mean we don't counsel. It doesn't mean you don't need leaders. You do. It don't mean kids uh, don't need their parents trying to disciple them. They do. But at some point, kids have to make decisions. They make choices, and all of us do. We thank God for good leaders, but we also recognize that we have to own our own faith. We have to take our faith seriously ourselves. And I have to remember as a a leader that people ultimately don't need me to live a godly life. They need God to live a godly life. We work with you for your joy. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, again, back to the idea of of why he didn't show up. I mean, in this travel itinerary, Paul drops so much theology. It's, it's quite remarkable. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For I, if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. So Paul has to have some hard conversations with the Corinthians, and ministering for people's joy doesn't mean you don't have hard conversations. We don't like those conversations, but Paul says, I wrote a painful letter. We had a painful meeting, but all of that was to put you on the road of obedience. All of that was actually for your joy. And he says in verse 3, my joy is bound up with your joy. He says that to the Philippians too when he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And I think you see something here from the Apostle Paul at the end of verse three. My joy would be the joy of all of you. That it really is in serving others that you find joy. Self-absorbed people are miserable people. But if you are serving other people, it's actually the pathway to your own joy. Now, I'm not saying that some weird psychological way, we, 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 we find ourselves in a place where we're motivated for our own self-interest, but just to say that when I work hard and serve the church, you know what happens? I get happy inside. <laughs> like there's a, there's a durable delight in God that happens. And Paul says, my ministry, even though it was through pain, through tears, through sorrow, because it was others-oriented, I derived great joy from that. Well, that's number six. Number seven, a minister of integrity is marked by heartfelt love. This just carries over the previous idea, but here Paul underscores love when he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Look at the emotion in this verse. Affliction, anguish, tears. Someone told me early on, God never blesses a tearless ministry. Paul says, I wrote out of tears. I labored out of tears. But here's the purpose, not to cause you pain. I didn't like writing that letter. I didn't like having that meeting. I wrote it, why? To let you know of the abundant love I have for you. It's heartfelt love. He didn't like rebuking them. It was tough love, but it was genuine love. Think about it, Paul could have been so angry with this church He could have just canceled the Corinthians. That's what our world does today, right? You do something wrong to me, I cancel you. I mute you. Paul didn't. He filled with anguish. Too much anger in the world and not enough anguish in the world. I mean, they basically had been calling him a liar. The guy who had brought them the gospel and planted this church. And Paul could have canceled them. He could have lit into them. But there's tears. This is a big hearted apostle. Paul is the one who wrote the famous love chapter to the Corinthians. (laughs) When he says, Love, for example, bears all things. Oh, he's bearing with the Corinthians. He knows, as we need to realize, that sanctification, our growth in Christ's likeness, is a slow process. And we have to love with a patient love. When Paul says love is patient, the Corinthians are an example of that. One of the verses I love in this letter, it's chapter 12, verse 15, when he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I'm going to spend myself for you. You can preach remarkable sermons, but if you don't have love, you're a clanging gong. And Paul's example challenges us, doesn't it? Grace-enabled godliness, an eschatological vision, truthful speech, Christ-centered proclamation, spiritual authenticity, joy-focused labor, and heartfelt love. But my friends, what a privilege it is to serve the Lord Jesus. To be caught up in new covenant glory. To lead others to follow him. What what does it involve? Uh, Look again at this, this bundle of terms. Anguish, tears, pain, but love and joy. It's suffering and it's rejoicing. And that's ministry. True love will bleed. We only look to the Lord Jesus to see this. The suffering Savior for the joy set before him endured the cross. He was in anguish and pain and tears, and he was displaying an unspeakable love to the world. Praise be to God, who has reconciled us to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's given us today, church, the spirit as a down payment, a guarantee of the glory that awaits us. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We bless you for your grace, for the promises of God that reached their apex in Christ Jesus, the one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Grateful today for the indwelling Holy Spirit who secures us, who establishes us, who seals us, who empowers us, for service and who guarantees us of the glory that awaits us. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. We don't have enough words, enough tongues, Lord, to sing your praise as we ought, but we offer up our praise to you in song today in celebration of the good news. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.